What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Weathering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and... Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire. You'll remember season one, I devoted one episode to discussing UFOs, or as they are now called UAP. And man, if we had a bonanza week for UAP slash UFO stuff in the news. Mostly because the U.S. is going around shooting them down. When we shoot down four of them? Four UFOs? My goodness. Now, if you're asking for my expert opinion about what we shot down, my expert opinion will tell you that we probably shot down some drones. Or some, some such thing. Or balloons or, you know, nothing particularly extraterrestrial. However, what's been captivating about this story for those ufologists such as myself who follow these things, is uh, not so much that we shot these things down, but that if you compare, uh, uh, the story seems to me to be to compare our reaction to these things versus our reaction to many other things that we see in the sky. Now, on one, on one hand, you can say, well, the U.S. is being very secretive about these things. And although I think there's maybe supposed to be a press conference today, it is Valentine's Day, by the way. Happy Valentine's Day to those who observe. And then there is, uh, oh, I, forgot what I, was, I forgot what I was even saying, that we see how the U.S. responds to these intrusions over our airspace. And then we recognize that these sorts of intrusions have been happening for literally decades and we haven't seen this level of engagement before so what's the what why why 
Well, some people are saying, well, they tune the radars differently, and so because they tune the radars differently, they're seeing these objects appearing, and that very well may be the case. But that has to do with small, slow-moving objects, and it's, it's, the radar seems to be capturing them better. But then, uh, on the other hand, you, you've got these other fast-moving vehicles, craft of some sort, that we can't shoot down. Well, what's the deal with those? And why isn't the U.S. making press conferences about those? You know, these craft that come into our airspace, there's nothing we can do about it. They go out of our airspace. So you, you, you can kind of sort of see glimmers of things through deduction, you know? You compare this response to the response of other UAP activity, and you go, well, that's, that's markedly different. Why? Why? Anyway, just an interesting story I'm following this week, as I'm sure many of you are. Anytime the U.S. shoots down something, that's... That's noteworthy. Also, what's interesting about it is that nobody has said, hey, you shot down my thing. You know, there's no country out there going, hey, you shot down my drone. You son of a gun. Uncle Sam, you big bully. Yeah, we were floating it over Arkansas or some damn thing, but you didn't need to shoot it down. We paid a lot of good money for that. You know, why isn't anybody, why isn't anybody stepping up and saying, hey, uh, you shot down my thing? Maybe they're waiting for the U.S., to go first and say, well, this is what we shot down. And then they'll go, yeah, you shot down my thing. That would make sense. So some drama, you know, in the skies over these United States, coupled with the drama going on within these here United States specifically, at one house out there among the moors where folks tend to ramble, and uh, we've got ourselves a problem which is that Kathy Jr. has been held hostage over there at Wuthering Heights for five days. Apparently, she's been married off to Linton Heathcliff, who now is keeping her bundled up in her room and revealing himself to be just an absolute little sniveling shit. And then you've got Mrs. Dean, who who was being held in her room there at Wuthering Heights for days. She was finally let loose. She ran home to Thrushcross Grange. She told Papa everything that was going on, and now she's ready to storm the castle. Have fun storming the castle. I don't know why that line cracked me up so much when I first saw it in The Princess Bride, but it certainly did. You remember Billy Crystal and uh, I want to say Carol Kane with him. Have fun storming the castle. Uh, yeah, there was just something funny to me about that. I think it was, I think it might have been the first time I was really introduced to the idea of anachronism in comedy. You know, these people who are kind of out of place and treating uh, storming the castle as an everyday occurrence, because to them maybe it was, and I don't know, strikes me as funny. Okay, so apparently what happened is Kathy Jr. is so sick, she's taken ill up there in the rooms of Wuthering Heights. So you've got sick Edgar Linton, you've got sick Kathy Jr., you've got sick Linton Heathcliff. Everybody's on death's door, which is good, because hopefully they will die and die soon. Her father shall see her, I vowed and vowed again, if that devil be killed on his own doorstones. And trying to prevent it, happily I was spared the journey and... The trouble, that's where we left it off last time. Let us pick it up once again. Chapter 28 of Wuthering Heights. 
I had gone downstairs at three o'clock to fetch a jug of water and was passing through the hall with it in my hand when a sharp knock at the front door made me jump. Oh, it is green, I said, recollecting myself, only green. And I went on, intending to send somebody else to open it. But the knock was repeated, not loud, and still importunately. What's importunately mean? Importunately. Well, time to crank up the old research machine, is it not? You bet it is. Importune at... Oh, persistent. Persistently. Maybe I knew that. Importunately. Uh, I put the jug on the banister and hastened to admit him myself. Well, that's interesting. Uh, just Just a tiny little thing, and it is tiny, but just the use of the word him as a... Um, as a uh, as a genderless pronoun, excuse me, the way it used to be before they them, uh, he him was sort of the default setting for any descriptor of a human being, whereupon the uh, person doing the describing did not know the person's sex, so you would just say he or him. It's changed. I put the jug, I hastened to admit him myself, the harvest moon shone clear outside. So this is three in the morning? Hold on a second. I had gone downstairs at three o'clock to fetch a jug of water. So why is the harvest moon shining clear outside? Three o'clock in the afternoon and already it's dark? Or maybe a harvest moon you can see during the day. Um, I mean, we got the research machine cranked up already. Let's go see what a harvest moon is. What's a harvest moon? It refers to the full bright moon that occurs closest to the start of autumn. The name dates from the time before electricity, when farmers depended on the moon's light to harvest their crops late into the night. So why is the moon out at three o'clock in the afternoon? Are we just, are we, is it so northern in this part of the United States that the moon comes out at three o'clock at the beginning of fall? There's not, I can't think of any place where, well, all right, anyway. Uh, It was not the attorney. My own sweet little mistress sprung on my neck, sobbing, Ellen, Ellen, is Papa alive? Yes, I cried. Yes, my angel, he is. God be thanked. You are safe with us again. She wanted to run, breathless as she was, upstairs to Mr. Linton's room. But I compelled her to sit down on a chair and made her drink and washed her pale face, chafing it into a faint color with my apron. Well, do you remember? And uh, that's just a thing I guess people did back then. Jude the Obscure, Arabella did the same thing. You know, pinching her cheeks to give him a little collar to seduce and, uh, you know, making, putting little dimples on herself to seduce. Um, no, I'm not saying Kathy Jr. is trying to seduce her father, far from it, but I guess before you had uh, drugstore makeup, this is what you did. Then I said, I must go first and tell of her arrival, imploring her to say she should be happy with young Heathcliff. She stared but soon comprehending why I counseled her to utter the falsehood, she assured me she would not complain. 
I couldn't abide to be present at their meeting. I stood outside the chamber door a quarter of an hour and hardly ventured near the bed then. All was composed, however. Catherine's despair was as silent as her father's joy. She supported him calmly in appearance, and he fixed on her features his raised eyes that seemed dilating with ecstasy. Well, that's nice. You know, the old man, he's on death's door, going to see his daughter one last time before he shuffles off this mortal coil, and her hiding her sorrow and despair at having married young Linton Heathcliff. They're getting along fine. They're playing a game of Parcheesi or some such thing. They're they're chatting and amiable. And who knows, maybe this reunion will even save his life. I doubt it. All was composed, uh, dilating with ecstasy. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. He died blissfully, Mr. Lockwood. He did so. He died. How do I feel about his death? Unmoved, let us say. Unmoved. But happy for Kathy Jr. that she got home in time to see Papa. He died blissfully, Mr. Lockwood. He died so. Kissing her cheek, he murmured, I am going to her. Meaning he's going to Kathy Sr., who never loved him to begin with, so whatever. I'm going to her, and you, darling child, shall come to us. And never stirred or spoke again, but continued that rapt, radiant glaze, till his pulse imperceptibly stopped and his soul departed. None could have noticed the exact minute of his death. It was so entirely without a struggle. That's how I want to die. Uh, I had a dream last night. I'm just remembering, just recalling now, that I had a dream last night, in which I feel like I was at a bar or something somewhere, and I was telling people, uh, oh, I can't wait to be dead. And uh, their reactions were not great. You know, because when somebody says that to you, you think to yourself, well, this person, uh, this person has a problem. They might be suicidal or something. And that's kind of how they reacted when I expressed it at my dream bar. Now, obviously, the weirdest thing about that dream is that I was at a bar. I never go to bars. What's the point? I don't like them. I don't like bars, never have, never will. That probably has something to do with the fact that I don't drink very much. And in my estimation, the only reason to go to a bar is to drink and meet somebody that you're going to have sex with. Otherwise, what's the point of going? There's none. Whether Catherine had spent her tears, or whether the grief were too weighty to let them flow, she sat there dry-eyed till the sun rose. She sat till noon, and would still have remained brooding over that deathbed, but I insisted on her coming away and taking some repose. So, uh, that seems like as good a break as any to take some repose of our own, as good a time as any, excuse me, to take some repose of our own. Let's take a little break and return in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Back on Obscure, Edgar Linton is dead, finally. Took forever, my God. You know, you, you recall, he came down with the sniffles. I said, well, he's dead, you know. Because in these books, back then in early America, you come down with the sniffles, that's it for you. Time to pay the grave diggers, you know, because they're, they got to get their shovels warmed up because they got to dig a hole for you. So she, uh, Mrs. Dean has just uh, removed her from the deathbed. It was well I succeeded in removing her. For at dinner time appeared the lawyer, having called at Wuthering Heights to get his instructions how to behave. He had sold himself to Mr. Heathcliff, and that was the cause of his delay in obeying my master's summons. Fortunately, no thought of worldly affairs crossed the latter's mind to disturb him after his daughter's arrival. Mr. Green took upon himself to order everything and everybody about the place. He gave all the servants but me notice to quit. He would have carried his delegated authority to the point of insisting that Edgar Linton should not be buried beside his wife, but in the chapel with his family. There was the will, however, to hinder that, and my loud protestations against any infringement of its directions. So the lawyer Green, I guess, has... uh, yeah, sold himself off to Heathcliff, and now that Linton's uh, Edgar Linton is dead, Heathcliff is doing everything he can to secure his power over there at Thrushcross Grange. He's told all the servants to quit. He's arranging for the burial of Edgar and would have had him buried somewhere other than his wishes, but he did have a will, and that was proper. The funeral was hurried over. Catherine, Mrs. Linton... Oh, I see. The funeral was hurried over. Catherine, Mrs. Linton Heathcliff now, was suffered to stay at the Grange till her father's corpse had quitted it. She told me that her anguish had at last spurred Linton to incur the risk of liberating her. She heard the men I sent disputing at the door, and she gathered the sense of Heathcliff's answer. It drove her desperate. Linton, well, uh, let me just say, oh, okay, gaka, 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 gaka. I'm not sure what gaka, gaka, gaka means, but I just said it, and I stand by it. It drove her desperate. Linton, 
who had been conveyed up to the little parlour soon after I left, was terrified into fetching the key before his father reascended. He had the cunning to unlock and relock the door without shutting it, and when he should have gone to bed, he begged to sleep with Herdon, and his petition was granted for once. He wants to sleep with Herdon, but Herdon's a dick. Herdon's mean to him, and he's mean to Herdon. They're mean to each other. Why do they want to sleep together? Catherine stole out before break of day. She dare not try the doors, lest the dog should raise an alarm. She visited the empty chambers, and examined their windows, and lucky, luckily, lighting on her mother's, she got easily out of its lattice and onto the ground by means of the fir tree close by. Her accomplice suffered for his share in the escape, notwithstanding his timid contrivances. So, young Linton Heathcliff, doing something right for a change, conspired to help Kathy Jr. escape from the heights and is suffering as a result of it. That is the end of chapter 28. We've got some time left. I say we start chapter 29. Why wouldn't we? Well, the answer is we would. The evening after the funeral, my young lady and I were seated in the library, now musing mournfully, one of us despairingly, on our loss, now venturing conjectures as to the gloomy future. We had just agreed the best destiny which could await Catherine would be a permission to continue resident at the Grange, at least during Linton's life, he being allowed to join her there, and I to remain as housekeeper. That seemed rather too favorable an arrangement to be hoped for, and yet I did hope, and began to cheer up under the prospect of retaining my home, and my employment, and above all, my beloved young mistress, when a servant, one of the discarded ones not yet departed, rushed hastily in and said that devil Heathcliff was coming through the court should he fasten the door in his face. Hell yes, you should. Slam it, latch it, stick a rifle barrel through the hole, tell him to get lost. Who cares? Who cares if uh, he's the de facto master? Who cares? Stick a muzzle in his face. If we'd been mad enough to order that proceeding, we had not time. He made no ceremony of knocking or announcing his name. He was master, and availed himself of the master's privilege to walk straight in without saying a word. The sound of our informant's voice directed him to the library. He entered, and motioning him out, shut the door. It was the same room into which he had been ushered as a guest eighteen years before. The same moon shone through the window, and the same autumn landscape lay outside. We had not yet lighted a candle, but all the apartment was visible, even to the portraits on the wall, the splendid head of Mrs. Linton, and the graceful one of her husband. Heathcliff advanced to the hearth. Time had little altered his person either. There was the same man, his dark face rather sallower and more composed, his frame a stone or two heavier, perhaps, and no other difference. Catherine had risen with an impulse to dash out when she saw him. Stop, he said, arresting her by the arm. No more runnings away. Where would you go? I'm come to fetch you home, and I hope you'll be a dutiful daughter, and not encourage my son to further disobedience. 
I was embarrassed how to punish him when I discovered his part in the business. He's such a cobweb, a pinch would annihilate him. That's quite a good line. He's such a cobweb, a pinch would annihilate him. I love it. But you'll see by his look that he has received his due. I brought him down one evening, the day before yesterday, and just set him in a chair, and never touched him afterwards. I sent Hareton out, and we had the room to ourselves. In two hours, I called Joseph to carry him up again, and since then, my presence is as potent on his nerves as a ghost, and I fancy he sees me often, though I am not near, though I am not near. Ayrton says he wakes and shrieks in the night by the hour together, and calls you to protect him from me, and whether you like your precious mate or not, you must come. He's your concern now. I yield all my interest in him to you. Ugh, he's disgusting. So what did he do? He sat him down for two hours, and what, just berated him? Because pinching him would annihilate him. He just yelled at him for two hours. He just threatened and he just threatened him. I, it's hard to hard to quite figure that out. But apparently it was very effective. He pulled an Abu Grab on him, and now he's sitting there quivering, cold, and naked. And I guess what makes matters better, although it's in some ways it seems worse, is that he said, I yield all my interest in him to you. Keep in mind. This is his son. I mean, he's just a dick. Why not let Catherine continue here, I pleaded, and send Master Linton to her. As you hate them both, you'd not miss them. They can only be a daily plague to your unnatural heart. <laughs> your unnatural heart. That feels like a, uh, like a good old-timey slur for a gay person or something. Your unnatural heart. But in this case, it is... Purely a descriptor of his unnatural heart, which is Grinch-like. I'm seeking a tenant for the Grange, he answered, and I want my children about me to be sure. Besides, that lass owes me her services for her bread. I'm not going to nurture her in luxury and idleness after Linton is gone. Make haste and get ready now, and don't oblige me to compel you. I shall, said Catherine, Linton is all I have to love in the world, and though you have done what you could to make him hateful to me, and me to him, you cannot make us hate each other. And I defy you to hurt him when I am by, and I defy you to frighten me. You are a boastful champion, replied Heathcliff, but I don't like you well enough to hurt him. You shall get the full benefit of the torment as long as it lasts. It is not I who will make him hateful to you. It is his own sweet spirit." He's as bitter as gall at your desertion and its consequences. Don't expect thanks for this noble devotion. I heard him draw a pleasant picture to Zilla of what he would do if he were as strong as I. The inclination is there, and his very weakness will sharpen his wits to find a substitute for strength. He's saying, you know, you, you might think he's a good guy, but, you know, he painted a pretty picture to Zilla of what he would do if he could. And we heard him talking to Mrs. Dean about uh, what a loathsome time he'd been giving to Kathy. And yet none of that seems to impact her. She's happy to go back to him. I don't know why. Because, you know, he, he, he's really given her very little joy. When we think this through, somebody made the point 
that he's the first boy she ever met. And I guess that's true. I mean, she's met servants and such, and she met Hareton, but old Edgar Linton didn't allow her past the boundaries of Thrushcross Grange, and so she fell under the spell of the the first kid who gave her a little attention. And don't forget, she's really just an adolescent herself, and that's just the way the adolescent mind works. Just awful. I know he has a bad nature, said Catherine. He's your son, but I'm glad I've a better to forgive it, and I know he loves me, and for that reason I love him. Mr. Heathcliff, you have nobody to love you, and however miserable you make us, we shall still have the revenge of thinking that your cruelty arises from your greater misery. You are miserable, are you not? Lonely like the devil, and envious like him. Nobody loves you. Nobody will cry for you when you die. I wouldn't be you. Catherine spoke with a kind of dreary triumph. She seemed to have made up her mind to enter into the spirit of her future family and draw pleasure from the griefs of her enemies. You shall be sorry to be yourself presently, said her father-in-law. If you stand there another minute, be gone, witch, and get your things. (laughs) Witch. (laughs) It's such a kind of tepid insult, and yet... I don't know, it lands, doesn't it, for some reason? Why does it land? But it does. She scornfully withdrew. In her absence, I began to beg for Zilla's place at the heights, offering to resign mine to her, but he would suffer it on no account. He bid me be silent, and then, for the first time, allowed himself a glance round the room and a look at the pictures. Having studied Mrs. Linton, he said, I shall have that home. Not because I need it, but... He turned abruptly to the fire and continued, with what, for a lack of a better word, I must call a smile. I'll tell you what I did yesterday. I got the sexton, who was digging Linton's grave, to remove the earth off her coffin lid, and I opened it. What? (laughs) That's creepy, right? That's creepy. Like, I don't care how much you love somebody. Once they've been dead... Uh, let's say a couple of years, that, you know, I don't know that you want to look at them again because they decompose and turns into worms meat, as Shakespeare once put it. I thought once I would have stayed there when I saw her face again. It is hers yet. He had hard work to stir me, but he said it would change if the air blew on it. And so I struck one side of the coffin loose and covered it up. Not Linton's side, damn him. I wish he'd been soldered in lead, and I bribed the sexton to pull it away. When I'm laid there and slide mine too, and slide mine out too, I'll have it made so, and then by the time Linton gets to us, he'll not know which is which. Um, okay. So, her face is still her face? I mean, how long has she been dead? She's been dead for, I feel like, a couple of years, and uh, I don't know how long it takes for your... The human body to decompose in a coffin research machine. You've been very good so far. How long does it take a human body to decompose? In a temperate climate, usually requires three weeks to several years for a body to completely decompose into a skeleton, depending on fact- factors such as temperature, humidity, presence of insects, uh, etc. What does a buried body look after one year? It would already be significantly decomposed, the soft tissues gone, only the bones and some other body parts remaining. So, it seems to me that perhaps 
our author, Emily Bronte, didn't have a real sense of what it would look like if a body were in such a state for a couple of years. And so, you know, took a little poetic license, and that's fine. I got no problem with that. You were very wicked, Mr. Heathcliff, I explained. Were you not ashamed to disturb the dead? I disturbed nobody, Nellie, he replied, and I gave some ease to myself. I shall be a great deal more comfortable now, and you'll have a better chance of keeping me underground when I get there. Disturbed her? No. She has disturbed me, night and day, through eighteen years, incessantly, remorselessly, till yesternight. And yesternight I was tranquil. I dreamt I was sleeping the last sleep by that sleeper. What? I dreamt I was sleeping the last sleep by that sleeper. So he dreamt that he was dead beside her, with my heart stopped and my cheek frozen against hers. And if she'd been dissolved into earth or worse, what would you have dreamt of then, I said, of dissolving with her and being more happy still, he answered. Do you suppose I dread any change of that sort? I expected such a transformation on raising the lid, but I'm better pleased that it should not commence till I share it. Besides, unless I had received a distinct impression of her passionless features, that strange feeling would hardly have been removed. It began oddly. You know, I was wild after she died, and eternally from dawn to dawn, praying her to return to me, her spirit. I have a strong faith in ghosts. I have a conviction that they can and do exist among us. And we will end there. Well, we know they do because, you know, Right away, one of the first things that happened is Kathy Sr. comes knocking on uh, the window saying, let me in, let me in, by the hairs of my chinny-chin-chin. And uh, that's what set Lockwood off on this journey of discovery to figure out what the hell is going on at that strange house called Wuthering Heights. And so we will leave it there and resume next week on another paranormal episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Black. sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Black. And I will see you next time.